This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. So I know it's an unspoken rule that you should start a sermon with a light anecdote, something to bring a chuckle and get the congregation on your side. Alas, with this topic, I don't know how to do that. It's too serious. But second best is a personal story, so I'll try that. Let's go back to September of 1965 to the day I first walked in the door at Rinconada House, my freshman dorm at Stanford. I was greeted in the entryway by David, one of three resident advisors, one for each floor, and he helped me haul my stuff upstairs to room 207. Now, David was the RA assigned to the first floor, but the three RAs had split their welcoming into shifts, so David actually became my very first contact at Stanford, and I connected him much more during my freshman year than with my uh, second floor RA, whose name I don't even recall. Now, a week or so later, I learned about a fellow new freshman at Rinconada, Willard. He was assigned to room 107, directly below me. Willard was a preppy from a wealthy, well-connected political family in the Midwest. And I confess, at the time, I was a fervent conservative. I had canvassed for the Goldwater campaign, and I subscribed to the National Review. Now, I tried to curry favor with Willard, but uh, to little effect. And because he, I was not admitted to his inner circle because it was largely populated by other preppies. And Willard was a bit peculiar anyway. He had a genuine police uniform that he would don on occasion, reportedly wearing it while cruising down El Camino Real in his top-of-the-line Rambler. Now, he probably would have preferred a Mustang, but the Rambler was mandatory because his father, George Romney, was CEO of American Motors before elected governor of Michigan. Yes, even back then, Willard was better known as Mitt. So back to David, the RA. He occupied a single room at the end of the first floor, and early in 66, rumors circulated, which I first dismissed, that Joan Baez had been spotted going into David's room late at night emerging supposedly much later, even into the wee hours. <laughs> really? Joan Baez, the angelic queen of folk, the heartthrob of Bob Dylan, now intimately sequestered with the bookish, frumpy-dressing, Fresno-bred David Harris? <laughs> no way. Turned out to be true. They were married about 18 months later shortly before David's imprisonment as a pivotal leader of the draft resistance movement. So that was Rinconada House, 1965-66, a future Republican presidential candidate and Mr. Joan Baez, the anti-war activist, bunking down barely 50 feet apart. I think of this as symbolic because even though we were then entering a tumultuous era, I never had the feeling that these two were members of warring tribes. 
I never felt that either was challenging the entire belief system and culture of the other. I expect if these two got together today, they would still express differences, but they would find a way to follow the admonition of Isaiah to reason together. Fast forward 57 years. The political environment now is far different on campus and in the broader American society. No, today we don't have as many massive protest marches, but even with those marches back then, and I participated in several, I never had the feeling that America was falling apart, that the whole democracy might be going off the tracks. Maybe that's because there was an underlying acceptance of a common good symbolized with this famous photo. Now today, I'm afraid we have a situation where deep animosity is far more widespread and far more sinister. It's no longer a disagreement over specific issues like the war or civil rights. It's more like Americans are splitting into two warring tribes, the Reds and the Blues, and one tribe doesn't merely disagree with the other tribe. Instead, they are regarded as evil, as the enemy. The other tribe is not to be trusted. Their arguments are invalid, and often even their facts are dismissed as fake. In other words, we are not unlike the Jews and Samaritans of Jesus' time. These were tribes that shared the same lands and early heritage, but because they developed different customs and beliefs, they considered the other tribe not only totally in the wrong, but perhaps even less than fully human. And now that same mindset is affecting our nation. And as a result, we're becoming more and more the disunited states of America. I felt this coming before the 2020 elections, and at that time, I joined Braver Angels, a group working to counter this polarization. More about that later. Another group I discovered through Braver Angels is the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy. Part of this project is what they call the Unity Index, which combines and graphs five inputs, including survey data on presidential disapproval, political and ideological extremism, social trust, political and social unrest, and congressional polarization. And here's what it shows. As you can see, back at the dawn of the Reagan era, a Unity Index of 67 shows that about two-thirds of Americans had confidence in our form of national governance. In March of 2022, the index dropped below 55, and that does not yet reflect the impact of recent Supreme Court rulings. We are now likely at the point where half of Americans have lost trust in their basic political institutions. Now, what this means as Americans is obvious, but what does this mean to us as Christians, as Methodists? How should we respond to this atmosphere of hyper-polarization? And let's start with our own denomination, which is on the verge of splitting in two. And I'm not going to dwell on this other than to acknowledge that this divorce in many ways mirrors what is happening in the larger society. However, for the most part, the feelings on both sides seem to be more of sadness and regret than deep-seated anger or bitterness. The differences stem from fundamental differences in interpretation of Scripture and tradition rather than today's political personalities. The same cannot be said, apparently, of many large evangelical churches, 
where vicious infighting has broken out based solely on political personalities and the results of the last election. In a recent article in The Atlantic uh, entitled, The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart, contributing writer Peter Weiner, who identifies himself as a lifelong evangelical, writes about a new invasive mindset that is, in his words, aggressive, disruptive, and unforgiving. This element, he says, has embraced the worst aspects of our culture and politics, making churches into places not of grace and, but of grievances, where fears are nurtured and where aggression and nastiness are sacralized. Of course, many, if not most, in national would say, well, duh, that's just the way all white evangelicals are these days. Hardly a surprise. But is that fair? Or is it an overgeneralization, a stereotype? Let's consider the strange case of this publication. Copyright here. Ah, Christianity Today. It was founded by Billy Graham in 1956. And in late 2019, the magazine published a controversial editorial urging the former president to resign from office. Thousands of subscriptions were promptly canceled. But apparently even more folks, like me, started new subscriptions to reward them for their courage. Now certainly the magazine remains theologically conservative, as well as strongly pro-family and pro-life. But it steers clear of any homophobia and at least overtly remains politically neutral. It is not afraid to publish articles that reveal the underlying dangers of political polarization in our society and in the church. In fact, in early 2020, CT published an article by Robert Tracy McKenzie, a professor at Wheaton College, on the new wave of populism. He perceptively points out that the two best-known populist politicians of our time are Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Although markedly different in political philosophies, they appeal to followers using the same basic script, but with different characters. Both maintain that the mass of ordinary Americans are noble, virtuous, and hardworking, but they're exploited by elite groups who oppress them. For populists on the left, the evil elites are the Wall Street financiers, greedy billionaires, and an amorphous corporate America. For populists on the right, the elites are Marxist intellectuals, college professors in particular, Hollywood liberals, and the mainstream media. Now, I see a lot of populist memes on my Facebook newsfeed, and all of them, not surprisingly, come from the blue side. But though the elites under attack may differ, the approach is pretty much the same. If you want to get likes on Facebook, this is what you need to do. So, if you want, if you want to be popular on Facebook, you accuse, attack, belittle, berate, castigate, condemn, dehumanize, demean, demonize, denigrate, denounce, deride, despise, humiliate, insult, lampoon, loathe, malign, mock, pillory, rebuke, revile, ridicule, scorn, stereotype, and vilify. Now, can we reason together as Isaiah admonish, admonishes with this kind of attitude? Now, we may protest that, well, we're seeking justice, but are we really walking humbly with our God? 
Or are we instead caught up in arrogance and self-righteous assertions? In other words, have we already decided who the Samaritans are and once labeled, there's no need to even listen to them? Why should we listen to their concerns, their fears, their hopes, their ambitions? And why should we care if those on the other side and the other tribe feel that their whole culture, their traditions, and their belief systems are being torn apart and ridiculed by our tribe? It doesn't matter. They're wrong. We know from up front who is wrong and who is not. Or do we? Let's take a look at one example of stereotyping used by today's identity politics. How would most members of the Ashland Blue Tribe feel about a person who is identified as, one, a straight white male, two, a billionaire capitalist, three, an evangelical Christian, and four, a Republican governor of a southern state? Now, persons sharing all these identities are grouped together and mercilessly attacked by some of my Facebook friends. But let's take a look at one example of a person matching this description. First, he pushed his state to become the first in the nation to make all two-year community colleges and technical schools 100% tuition-free. His state legislature passed a bill to make the Bible the official state book, and he vetoed it. He opposes the notion of any political party being the approved Christian party. His two terms as governor spanned the Obama and Trump administrations, and in his book, he relates anecdotes reflecting favorably on Obama as a person. Personal references to Trump are conspicuous by their absence. And he holds up Nelson Mandela as an inspiring example of pursuing justice with patience, humility, and forgiveness. So our mystery man is um, Bill Haslam, the uh, former governor of Tennessee. And um, change my page too quickly. What did I say? Yeah. Um, he's one of the um, co-chairs of the Vanderbilt Unity Project, which I mentioned earlier. And I ordered a copy of his book, Faithful Presence, The Promise and Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Now, it's not a great book by any account, but it is worthwhile as an example of a politician struggling to reconcile an apolitical conservative faith with today's strident realities. He certainly knows his Bible. Nearly every point he makes is backed by at least one scriptural reference. And I particularly like his unpacking of the passage from Micah, about which he says, the more I see of our problems, particularly the ones that seem most intractable, the more convinced I am that acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly are, are our only real hope for change. But change will happen only if we do all three things at the same time. Pursuing justice without mercy will only lead to self-righteousness. Mercy without justice leaves unaddressed many of the inequities that plague us today. And, um, justice without mer and justice or mercy without humility 
results in destructive pride about just how just and merciful we are. And when I look at social media and read about cable news commentators, I don't actually watch any of them, I see lots of people shouting their version of justice, a few pleading for others to show mercy, but precious few acting with any trace of humility. It seems these days we have to assert, assert loudly that our tribe has all the right answers based on absolute truths, while the other tribe is always wrong because everything they say is based on falsehoods. But is it, is it always that simple? If I may, I'd like to touch on two highly controversial current topics. First, abortion. My thoughts and beliefs on this issue first crystallized back in 1973, the year of Roe v. Wade. At that time, I admit I was sampling psychedelic drugs, and I was also hanging out with a hippie midwife at the Arcata Birth Center. And from that experience, I developed a gut feeling that abortion is bad karma and should be avoided and discouraged, though not necessarily made a criminal offense. And the basis of that stance is my inability to determine absolutely and without any trace of doubt exactly when a fetus transitions from being just a part of the mother, no different than her hair or fingernails, and instead becomes a separate human being. Now that's a question on which all the preachers, judges, talking heads, and state legislators, to my mind, are also not qualified to make a definitive decision, and they should humbly admit it. So for 50 years, I've been deeply conflicted on this issue, which is not an acceptable position in today's highly polarized debate. Pick one extreme or the other, I'm told, and then vigorously assert that you are absolutely right. Another issue on which some Christian humility would, in, would be in order is the COVID-19 vaccinations and mask mandates. Now, this was a highly divisive issue, with one political tribe asserting that vaccines and strict mask mandates would quickly end the pandemic, and the other tribe vociferously asserting that vaccines were either dangerous or useless, and that mask mandates were unnecessary and wouldn't work. Well, after two years, it's apparent that neither tribe had it all right. And that's primarily because, as many experts in the field will humbly admit, medical science still doesn't fully understand how viruses work. Much remains shrouded in mystery, and the science is often inconclusive and even conflicting. The New York Times has been excellent all along in reporting on such conundrums. Anyway, today we find that vaccinations and boosters have almost zero efficacy in, um, keep in uh, preventing infection, and the extent to which they can lessen severity has to be recalculated with every new variant, and new variants pop up faster than vaccine development can keep up with them. As for masks, they are proven effective in controlled environments like hospitals, and here, we hope. However, it turns out that there was essentially no meaningful reduction in infection rates when comparing states and localities with strong mask mandates to those with weak mask mandates or no mask mandates at all. 
though factors such as climate, population density, and compliance could be partly responsible. But again, the bottom line is that neither tribe had it 100% right, and both tribes need to humbly admit it. Now, this isn't to say you shouldn't stand up for what you believe and lend full support to a just cause. But once you start using that cause as a platform to launch all-out war on the enemy tribe, then we all descend steadily into a place where we lose the core of our faith and the soul of our country. And now here's the sales pitch. Good. New slide? Uh, uh, shortly before the 20th elections, I discovered Brave Angels. The group is dedicated to countering the extreme polarization in America by opening lines of civil dialogue between the red and blue tribes. If you also believe this is vital to preserving our nation, you might want to check them out. And I'll close with some words for yet another Republican. This one, the very first elected to, that, uh, to the office of president from that party, Abraham Lincoln. This is from his second inaugural address in 1865. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations, with malice toward none, with charity for all, including your personal Samaritans, that's an attitude in short supply on social media these days, but let's try to keep it alive in our churches and in our lives.